Book One, Chapter Nineteen of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Nineteen Robert Steals His Own. The period of the Hairst play, that is, of the harvest holiday time, drew near and over the north of Scotland thousands of half-grown hearts were beating with glad anticipation. Of the usual devices of boys to cheat themselves into the half-belief of expediting a blessed approach by marking its rate, Robert knew nothing. Even the notching of sticks was unknown at Rothaden, but he had a mode notwithstanding. Although indifferent to the games of his schoolfellows, there was one amusement, a solitary one, nearly, and therein not so good as most amusements, into which he entered with the whole energy of his nature. It was kite-flying. The moment that the Hairst play approached, near enough to strike its image through the eyes of his mind, Robert proceeded to make his kite, or dragon, as he called it. Of how many pleasures does pocket-money deprive the unfortunate possessor? what is the going into a shop and buying what you want compared with the gentle delight of hours and days filled with gaining effort after the attainment of your end never boy that bought his kite even if the adornment thereafter lay in his own hands and the pictures were gorgeous with colour and gilding could have half the enjoyment of robert from the moment he went to the coopers to ask for an old gird or hoop to the moment when he said no shargar and the kite rose slowly from the depth of the aerial flood. The hoop was carefully examined, the best portion cut away from it. That paired to a light strength, its ends confined to the proper curve by a string. And then away went Robert to the Wright's shop. There a slip of wood of proper length and thickness was readily granted to his request, free as the daisies of the field. Oh, those horrid town conditions where nothing is given for the asking, but all sold for money. In Robert's kite the only thing that cost money was the string to fly it with, and that the grandmother willingly provided, for not even her ingenuity could discover any evil, direct or implicated, in kite-flying. Indeed, I believe the old lady felt not a little sympathy with the exultation of the boy when he saw his kite far aloft, diminished to a speck in the vast blue sympathy it may be rooted in the religious aspirations which she did so much at once to rouse and to suppress in the bosom of her grandchild but i have not yet reached the kite flying for i have said nothing of the kite's tail for the sake of which principally i began to describe the process of its growth as soon as the body of the dragon was completed robert attached to its spine the string which was to take the place of its caudal elongation and at a proper distance from the body joined to the string the first of the cross pieces of folded paper which in this animal represent the continued vertebral processes every morning the moment he issued from his chamber he proceeded to the garret where the monster lay to add yet another joint to his tail until at length the day should arrive when the lessons over for a blessed eternity of five or six weeks he would tip the hole with a piece of wood to which grass quantum suff might be added from the happy fields upon this occasion the dragon was a monster one with a little help from shargar he had laid a skeleton of a six-foot specimen and had carried the body to a satisfactory completion 
The tail was still growing, having as yet only sixteen joints. When Mr. Lammie called with an invitation for the boys to spend their holidays with him, it was fortunate for Robert that he was in the room when Mr. Lammie presented his petition, otherwise he would never have heard of it till the day of departure arrived, and would thus have lost all the delights of anticipation. In frantic effort to control his ecstasy, he sped to the garret, and with trembling hands tied the second joint of the day to the tail of the dragon, the first time he had ever broken the law of its accretion. Once broken, that law was henceforth an object of scorn, and the tail grew with frightful rapidity. It was indeed a great dragon, and none of the paltry fields about Rothaden should be honoured with its first flight. But from body falled should the majestic child of earth ascend into the regions of upper air. My reader may here be tempted to remind me that Robert had been only too glad to return to Rothaden from his former visit, but I must in my turn remind him that the circumstances were changed. In the first place the fiddle was substituted for Granny, and in the second the dragon for the school. The making of this dragon was a happy thing for Shargar, and a yet happier thing for Robert, in that it introduced again for a time some community of interest between them. Shargar was happier than he had been for many a day, because Robert used him, and Robert was yet happier than Shargar, in that his conscience, which had reproached him for his neglect of him, was now silent. But not even his dragon had turned aside his attention from his violin, and many were the consultations between the boys as to how best she might be transported to Bodyfold, where endless opportunities of holding communion with her would not be wanting. The difficulty was only how to get her clear of Rothaden. The play commenced on a Saturday, but not till the Monday were they set at liberty. Wearily the hours of mental labour and bodily torpidity, which the Scots called the Sabbath, passed away, and at length the millennial morning dawned. Robert and Shargar were up before the sun, but strenuous were the efforts they made to suppress all indications of excitement lest Granny, fearing the immoral influence of gladness, should give orders to delay their departure for an awfully indefinite period, which might be an hour, a day, or even a week. Horrible conception! Their behavior was so decorous that not even a hinted threat escaped the lips of Mrs. Falconer. They set out three hours before noon, carrying the great kite, and Robert's school-bag of green buys, full of sundries, a cart from Bodyfold was to fetch their luggage later in the day. As soon as they were clear of the houses, Shargar lay down behind a dyke with the kite, and Robert set off at full speed for Dubal Sanny's shop, making a half-circuit of the town to avoid the chance of being seen by Granny or Betty. Having given due warning before, he found the brown paper parcel ready for him, and carried it off in fearful triumph. He joined Shargar in safety, and they set out, on their journey as rich and happy a pair of tramps as ever tramped, having six weeks of their own in their pockets to spend and not spare. A hearty welcome awaited them, and they were soon reveling in the glories of the place, the first instalment of which was in the shape of curds and cream, with oat cake and butter, as much as they liked. After this they would, even to it like French falconers, with their kite, for the wind had been blowing bravely all the morning, having business to do with the harvest. The season of stubble not yet arrived, they were limited to the pasturage and moorland, which, however, large as their kite was, were spacious enough. 
Slowly the great-headed creature arose from the hands of Shargar, and ascended about twenty feet, when, as if seized with a sudden fit of wrath or fierce indignation, it turned right round and dashed itself with headlong fury to the earth, as if sooner than submit to such influences a moment longer it would beat out its brains at once. "'It has not half tail enough,' cried Robert. "'It's queer at things will not go on up on holding them down. Put a good hand full of clover, Shargar. She's had her fall and knew she'll go on up all right. She's none the worse of it. Upon the next attempt, the kite rose triumphantly, but just as it reached the length of the string, it shot into a faster current of air, and Robert found himself first dragged along in spite of his efforts, and then lifted from his feet. After carrying him a few yards, the dragon broke its string, dropped him in a ditch, and drifting away, went fluttering and waggling downwards in the distance. "'Look where she gone, Shargar,' cried Robert from the ditch." Experience coming to his aid, Shargar took landmarks of the direction in which it went, and ere long they found it with its tail entangled in the topmost branches of a hawthorn tree, and its head beating the ground at its foot. It was at once agreed that they would not fly it again till they got some stronger string. Having heard the adventure, Mr. Lammy produced a shilling from the pocket of his corduroys, and gave it to Robert to spend upon the needful string. He resolved to go to the town the next morning and make a grand purchase of the same. During the afternoon he roamed about the farm with his hands in his pockets, revolving, if not many memories, yet many questions, while Shargar followed like a pup at the heels of Miss Lammy, to whom, during his former visit, he had become greatly attached. In the evening, resolved to make a confidant of Mr. Lammy, and indeed to cast himself upon the kindness of the household generally, Robert went up to his room to release his violin from its prison of brown paper. What was his dismay to find? Not his bonny leddy, but her poor cousin, the shoemaker's old wife. It was too bad. Double sanny, indeed. He first stared, then went into a rage, and then came out of it to go into a resolution. He replaced the unwelcome fiddle in the parcel, and came downstairs gloomy and still wrathful, but silent. The evening passed over, and the inhabitants of the farmhouse went early to bed. Robert tossed about, fuming on his. He had not undressed. About eleven o'clock, after all had been still for more than an hour, he took his shoes in one hand and the brown parcel in the other, and descending the stairs like a thief, undid the quiet wooden bar that secured the door, and let himself out. All was darkness, for the moon was not yet up and he felt a strange sensation of ghostliness in himself, awake and out of doors, when he ought to be asleep and unconscious in bed. He had never been out so late before, and felt as if walking in the region of the dead, existing when and where he had no business to exist. For it was the time nature kept for her own quiet, and having once put her children to bed, hidden them away with the world wiped out of them, and closed them in her ebony box, as George Herbert says, she did not expect to have her hours of undress and meditation intruded upon by a venturesome schoolboy. Yet she let him pass. He put on his shoes and hurried to the road. He heard a horse stamp in the stable and saw a cat dart across the cornyard as he went through. These were all the signs of life about the place. It was a cloudy night and still. Nothing was to be heard but his own footsteps. The cattle in the fields were all asleep. 
the larch and spruce trees on the top of the hill by the foot of which his road wound were still as clouds he could just see the sky through their stems it was washed with the faintest of light for the moon far below was yet climbing towards the horizon a star or two sparkled where the clouds broke but so little light was there that until he had passed the moorland on the hill he could not get the horror of moss holes and deep springs covered with treacherous green out of his head but he never thought of turning when the fears of the way at length fell back and allowed his own thoughts to rise the sense of a presence or of something that might grow to a presence was the first to awaken him the stillness seemed to be thinking all around his head but the way grew so dark where it lay through a corner of the pine wood that he had to feel the edge of the road with his foot to make sure that he was keeping upon it and the sense of the silence vanished then he passed a farm and the motions of horses came through the dark and a doubtful crow from a young inexperienced cock who did not yet know the moon from the sun then a sleepy low in his ears startled him and made him quicken his pace involuntarily by the time he reached rothaden all the lights were out and this was just what he wanted the economy of dubal sanny's abode was this the outer door was always left on the latch at night because several families lived in the house the shoemaker's workshop opened from the passage close to the outer door therefore its door was locked but the key hung on a nail just inside the shoemaker's bedroom all this robert knew arrived at the house he lifted the latch closed the door behind him took off his shoes once more like a housebreaker as indeed he was although a righteous one and felt his way to and up the stair to the bedroom there was a the sound of snoring within the door was a little ajar he reached the key and descended his heart beating more and more wildly as he approached the realization of his hopes gently as he could he turned it in the lock in a moment more he had his hands on the spot where the shoemaker always laid his violin but his heart sank within him there was no violin there a blank of dismay held him both motionless and thoughtless nor had he recovered his senses before he heard footsteps which he well knew approaching in the street he slunk at once into a corner elshender entered feeling his way carefully and muttering at his wife he was tipsy most likely but that had never yet interfered with the safety of his fiddle robert heard its faint echo as he laid it gently down nor was he too tipsy to lock the door behind him leaving robert incarcerated amongst the old boots and leather and rosin for one moment only did the boy's heart fail him the next he was in action for a happy thought had already struck him hastily that he might forestall sleep in the brain of the shoemaker he undid his parcel and after carefully enveloping his own violin in the paper took the old wife of the shoemaker and proceeded to perform upon her a trick which in a merry moment his master had taught him and which not without some feeling of irreverence he had occasionally practised upon his own bonny laddie the shoemaker's room was overhead its thin floor of planks was the ceiling of the workshop ere dubal sanny was well laid by the side of his sleeping wife he heard a frightful sound from below as of some one tearing his beloved violin to pieces no sound of rending coffin planks or rising dead would have been so horrible in the ears of the shoemaker he sprang from his bed with a haste that shook the crazy tenement to its foundation the moment robert heard that he put the violin in its place and took his station by the door-check 
The shoemaker came tumbling down the stair and rushed at the door, but found that he had to go back for the key. When, with uncertain hand, he had opened at length, he went straight to the nest of his treasure, and Robert, slipping out noiselessly, was in the next street before Dubal Sanny, having found the fiddle uninjured and not discovering the substitution, had finished concluding that the whisky in his imagination had played him a very discourteous trick between them, and retired once more to bed. And not till Robert had cut his foot badly with a piece of glass did he discover that he had left his shoes behind him. He tied it up with his handkerchief and limped home the three miles, too happy to think of consequences. Before he had gone far, the moon floated up on the horizon, large and shaped like the broad side of a barrel. She stared at him in amazement to see him out at such a time of the night. But he grasped his violin and went on. He had no fear now, even when he passed again over the desolate moss, although he saw the stagnant pools glimmering about him in the moonlight. And ever after this he had a fancy for roaming at night. He reached home in safety, found the door as he had left it, and ascended to his bed, triumphant in his fiddle. In the morning bloody prints were discovered on the stair and traced to the door of his room. Miss Lammy entered in some alarm and found him fast asleep on his bed, still dressed with the brown paper parcel in his arms, and one of his feet evidently enough the source of the frightful stain. She was too kind to wake him, and inquiry was postponed till they met at breakfast, to which he descended barefooted, save for a handkerchief on the injured foot. "'Robert, my lad,' said Mr. Lammy kindly, "'who came ye by that bloody foot?' Robert began the story, and guided by a few questions from his host, at length told the tale of the violin from beginning to end, omitting only his adventure in the factory. Many a guffaw from Mr. Lammy greeted its progress, and Miss Lammy laughed till the tears rolled unheeded down her cheeks, especially when Shargar, emboldened by the admiration Robert had awakened, imparted his private share in the comedy, namely the entombment of Boston in a fifth-fold state for the Lammies were none of the unco good to be censorious upon such exploits. The whole business advanced the boys in favour at Bodyfald, and the entreaties of Robert that nothing should reach his grandmother's ears were entirely unnecessary. After breakfast Miss Lammie dressed the wounded foot. But what was to be done for shoes, for Robert's Sunday pair had been left at home? Under ordinary circumstances it would have been no great hardship to him to go barefoot for the rest of the autumn, but the cut was rather a serious one, so his feet were cased in a pair of Mr. Lammy's Sunday boots, which from their size made it so difficult for him to get along that he did not go far from the doors, but revelled in the company of his violin in the cornyard, amongst last year's ricks, in the barn and in the hayloft, playing all the tunes he knew and trying over one or two more from a very dirty old book of scotch airs which his teacher had lent him in the evening as they sat together after supper mr lammie said weel robert who is the fiddle fine i thank ye sir answered robert let's hear what ye can do with it robert fetched the instrument and complied that's no that ill remarked the farmer but eh man ye should have heard your grandfather handle the bow. That was something to hear. Once in a body's life, he would have just thought the strings had been drawn from his own inside, he kent them so well, and handled them so fine. 
He just felt them like with his fingers through the bow and the horsehair and all, and all the time he was drawing the sound like the soul from them, and they just did anything that he liked it. Eh, to hear him play the flowers of the forest would have guard ye great. Could my father play? asked Robert. Ay, well enough for him. He could do anything he liked to try better nor Midland. I never saw such a man. He played upon the bagpipes and the flute and the bugle, and I cannot what all, but altogether they came now within sight of his father upon the old fiddle. Let's have a look at her. He took the instrument in his hands reverently, turned it over and over, and said, Ay, ay, it's the same old mole, and I wot it ground bonny meal. That smart creature knew it'll be worth a hundred pounds, I warrant he added as he restored it carefully into robert's hands to whom it was honey and spice to hear his bonny lady paid her due honours can you play the floors of the forest new he added yet again ay can i answered robert with some pride and laid the bow on the violin and played the air through without blundering a single note weel that's very weel said mr lammie but it's nae more like as your grandfather played it than given there were two sawyers at it, one at ilka lug of the bow with the fiddle atween them in a saw-pit. Robert's heart sank within him, but Mr. Lammie went on. To hear the bow cooing and wailing and grating o'er the strings would have just guard ye see the lands of broad Scotland with all the lassies greeting for the lads that lay upon red flood and side. Lasses to cut, and lasses to gather, and lasses to bind, and lasses to stook, and lasses to lead, and knew a lad among them all. It's just a morning of women doing men's work as well as their own, for the men that should have been there to do it, and I was warrant ye no word to the exceptional overall lad that did not go on with the rest. Robert had not hitherto understood it, this wail of a pastoral and ploughing people, over those who had left their side to return no more from the field of battle. But Mr. Lammie's description of his grandfather's rendering laid hold of his heart. "'I would rather be grotten for nor kissed,' he said, simply. "'Hold ye to that, my lad,' returned Mr. Lammie. "'Let the lassies greet for ye, given they like, but hold oot o'er from the kissin. I would not mail with it.' But father, did not put such nonsense in the bairn's heads," said Miss Lammie. "Whilk's the nonsense, Aggie?" asked her father slyly. "But I doot," he added, "he'll never play the floors of the forest as it should be played till he's had a taste of the kissin' lass." "Weel, it's a queer instructor of yoth at says, and on says in the same breath." "Never ye mind. I have not contradicted myself yet, for I have said nothing." But, Robert, my man, ye mount pit more soul into your fiddling. Ye cannot play the fiddle till ye can gart great. It's uncle ready to that of its own self, and it's my opinion that there's no another instrument but the fiddle fit to play the floors of the forest upon, for that very risen in all his majesty's dominions. My father played the fiddle, but no like your grandfather. Robert was silent. He spent the whole of the next morning in reiterated attempts to alter his style of playing, the air in question, but in vain, as far at least as any satisfaction to himself was the result. 
He laid the instrument down in despair, and sat for an hour disconsolate upon the bedside. His visit had not as yet been at all so fertile in pleasure as he had anticipated. He could not fly his kite. He could not walk. He had lost his shoes. Mr. Lammy had not approved of his playing, and, although he had his will of the fiddle, he could not get his will out of it. He could never play so as to please Miss St. John. Nothing but manly pride kept him from crying. He was sorely disappointed and dissatisfied, and the world might be dreary, even at Bodyfall. Few men can wait upon the bright day in the midst of the dull one, nor can many men even wait for it. End chapter 19